The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. Currently at the moment, we've got a Grumman Avenger being restored and a de Havilland single-seat FB5 Vampire. These things are all part of New Zealand's aviation history. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com Extended Hi, this is Peter Johnson from Aerospace Radio Station Extended and we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's, he's been something of, of an unsung hero of the American space program outside those who are, have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. <laughs> some people will call you mad. Some people will call you heroes. Uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's, uh, it's an amazing project to, to pull together from literally from scratch. And views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure. So why not give us a listen if you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry? Come over and give us a visit. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of extended. Extended. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Wigram and to the uh, Wings of New Zealand Forum Meet for 2019. Uh, I'm Dave Homewood. Most of you probably know me from the Forum and various other places. Um, I um, 
I'm really uh, quite um, grateful to the museum here for everything they've done, and particularly to uh, Wing Commander Brett Marshall here, uh, and to Michelle Sim, who has helped me all the way through setting this up. Uh, unfortunately, um, she was going to come, and unfortunately she can't come today, so um, she's really gutted about that, but, and so am I, but uh, um, yeah, I just wanted to make sure that she got acknowledged. And to all of the staff here at the museum as well who have um, made this happen. Um, we've got some great speakers coming up. I won't talk for too long, but um, I'd like to um, introduce Wing Commander Brett Marshall to uh, give a welcome on behalf of the museum. So if you'd like to come up, Brett. Kia ora, ladies and gentlemen. It's an absolute um, pleasure to uh, have you here today. Cast of thousands, which is, is fantastic. Um, I'll be uh, around until midday, um, so listening in for um, a, a number of the presentations this morning. I then have dad duty, um, dropping daughters off at practices and picking them up again. Some of you could probably relate to that, although looking at the... Uh, no, I won't go there. Uh, <laughs> so um, it's um, uh, just a couple of things. I will say, firstly, health and safety. If there are um, any emergencies in the exits, are uh, straight through out the, obviously the doors there, and then the closest exit is to the, the left, and the assembly point is in the, in the car park area. With respect to toilets, there's toilets right behind the wall right there, but they are limited. There's further toilets at the entrance as well. Um, with respect to lunch, um, because there is so many of you, um, the Brevet Lounge is available, and maybe um, if you have a break, I don't know when the break is, about, about 12, about 12 For an hour. You know, the, um, there may be a bit of a backlog, but because you all have beautiful patience, I'm sure that, that'll be fine. Um, and just um, a little bit uh, from me, I obviously, um, or not obviously, but I'm now got appointed the d director um, about three months ago now, and I'm about to step out of uniform because it's a civilian position, so I had to um, apply and go through all of that, so I'll be stepping into urban camouflage. It's <laughs> a bit of humour. Um, at the end of this month, so this will be my last month uh, in uniform, I'll be staying on the active reserve, but for me it's a real honour and a privilege to be the, uh, the director of uh, your Air Force Museum. Um, for me, the heart of our museum is on the wall behind us, uh, behind there, which is our Roll of Honour, which has the names of over 4,600 of our men and women who uh, gave their lives for, um, for our country. Um, on that note, I was just thinking on the 25th of September, we're having a small birthday party here for Mr. Rod Hermans, who's turning 108 New Zealand's oldest man, also a World War II veteran. But, um, and it's just a small morning tea that we're, we're having for him. But I, I was just thinking um, as, we, as we build up to that, that um, it's fantastic to celebrate that. But uh, the average age on a roll of honour is 21. So all of those there that gave their lives so that we can actually do things like celebrate Ron turning 108, to me I kind of felt that, that was quite poignant. Um, the last couple of things I want to say, firstly, thank you for, for being here today. It's uh, fantastic for us to, to be able to host you. And I also want to acknowledge Dave um, and just his passion that uh, I've only got to know him over the last two or three years, but his passion for aviation is palpable. And he is the driving force while you're all gathered here um, in the forums and the pro boards and everything. So I just want to uh, acknowledge Dave Homewood. Uh, I'd like to embarrass him. Um, so if you'd also actually like to show your appreciation for... Uh, So thanks Dave, thanks to you all for being here um, and I look forward to hearing some of the presentations. Have a fantastic day. Thanks.
Thank you very much, Brett. That's um, very nice. Um, I um, have a few things I just want to say before we get started, and one is uh, uh, Anthony Galbraith has brought the mosquito, which um, many of us have been following on uh, the forum, the 148 scale model, which is going to be auctioned on eBay, I think, is it, Anthony? Trade me. Trade me, okay. Uh, to raise money for the real mosquito at Ferrymead, and uh, so it's finished, and um, this is its public debut here today. Um, don't touch it. <laughs> Whatever you do, do not touch it. Uh, but it looks like a beautiful model, so thanks for bringing that along. Um, um, also, some of you will know, and some of you may not, um, I now am the editor for Sport Flying Magazine, and I've brought some of the latest issues um, for you to take away if you want a copy. Um, and I don't want to take them home, so go grab them. They're free. Uh, and I think that's all of the housekeeping. And now we get to the part where probably the whole technology thing fails. <laughs> so we're going to get um, our first speaker going, and that is uh, Louisa Horman of the Archives here at Wigram. Uh, and she's going to give us a talk on the guinea pig club. Uh, and so I'm really looking forward to this because uh, there's a bit of a Kiwi aspect to this, isn't there? Yeah. So I'll just bring this up. Better. Okay, over to you, Louisa. <laughs> Kia ora everyone and namahi Dave. Um, thank you for inviting me to speak here today. I joined the research team here at the museum back in 2017, fresh out of postgrad study, but with a few short stints of museum work behind me. As a student of social history, I was always interested in war and society, but especially the social and cultural legacies of conflict. And as a museum professional, I'm fascinated by the ways difficult histories and confronting subject matter is exhibited or communicated through display in a museum context. As I became more familiar with the history of the RNZAF and military aviation in general, I became interested in the guinea pig club, the experiences and incredible fortitude of the airmen themselves and the innovative care administered by the man they called the maestro, New Zealand plastic surgeon Sir Archibald Hector Mackindoe. My talk today will explore some of the connections this international band of brothers and their surgical treatment have with Aotearoa New Zealand, and to finish I will give an example of how stories of this kind have been exhibited in museums. By the end of World War II, the famous Guinea Pig Club was quipped the most exclusive club in Britain. The club was formed in June 1941 by and for RAF and Allied Air Force aircrew undergoing gruelling burn surgery at Queen Victoria Hospital in East Grinstead. Bearing in mind that not all RAF casualties were treated at East Grinstead. By the end of the First World War, plastic and reconstructive surgery had become the main branch of military surgery but it was still very much a developing area of medical science. The name guinea pig, as you might guess, refers to the pioneering experimental nature of these airmen's treatments. McKindo's older cousin, Sir Harold Delft Gillies, was a renowned World War I plastic surgeon, and it was under his tutelage that McKindo trained to meet the particular challenges of the next World War. In this case, faces and other areas of the body that had been severely burned rather than blown away, as was more common in the First World War. 
one of those images is not appearing, but the one there that you can see is the pamphlet that I will be talking about. That's the first edition. So initially many of the club's members were fighter pilots, but later on the majority were bomber command crew. As Burns cases increased, this Air Ministry pamphlet, number 168, first edition, May 1944, on first aid and early treatment of burns in the Royal Air Force, was published to educate RAF medical officers who were usually first on the scene of such accidents. Why were air crews so badly burned, and why were their hands and faces most at risk? This diagram in the first edition clearly shows and explains the distribution of aviators burn. Characteristic burn distribution over the face in the non-helmeted area and affected by not wearing goggles and oxygen mask, on the hands when gloves are not worn, and on the legs above the flying boots. Burns in the knee region are due to proximity to source of fire. So these airmen didn't just suffer physically from their ordeal, but as you can imagine, they also suffered psychologically. It was thanks to Mackendo's surgical work and his social work that these men eventually continued their lives in employment and, most importantly, in good spirits. Membership was limited to serving aircrew and some medical staff, and it was the club's strong camaraderie and social life, with the advocacy provided by its own members and benefactors, especially Mackendo, which gave the airmen new confidence in life. The club ensured their social inclusion in the wider community, and by war's end, it had 649 members. The majority of guinea pigs were British, but also included New Zealand, New Zealand Australian, Canadian, American, French, Czech, Polish, Belgian, Russian, and Turkish members. There were over 170 international guinea pigs, making up more than a quarter of the club's total membership. Archibald McIndoe and his fellow Otago University contemporary Rainsford Mullum represented the next generation of plastic and maxillofacial surgeons following the example laid by Gillies and Henry Percy Pickerel in the First World War. As outlined by Murray Michael in his book Reconstructing Faces, The Art and Wartime Surgery of Gillies, Pickerel, McIndoe and Mullum, these four men were considered together the big four, the only four fully experienced plastic surgeons working in the UK at the outbreak of World War II. All four, in fact, had connections to New Zealand. All except Pickerel were born here, with Pickerel permanently immigrating to New Zealand in his late 20s. Gillies and McIndoe were born in Dunedin, and McIndoe and Marlin both educated at Otago University. Today I'll focus on McIndoe and also explore the influence a little of his older cousin Gillies on McIndoe's work. Archibald McIndoe was born in 1900 and studied, at, studied medicine at Otago University and in the United States before arriving in London in 1930. McIndoe's surgical team first formed at his Harley Street practice in 1935. They were known as the Immortal Trio or the Firm of Three and included McIndoe, his anaesthetist John Hunter, known as the Pass Out King, and theatre sister Jill Mullins. After gaining further qualifications and positions, McIndoe was appointed the RAF's consultant in plastic surgery in 1938. This was a um, civilian position. 
He began his pioneering work at the Blonde McKindo Research Centre, Queen Victoria Hospital, Sussex, dealing with RAF aircrew casualties. Together with Canadian plastic surgeon group captain A. Ross Tilley, McIndo developed groundbreaking techniques for reconstructing and rehabilitating burn survivors. He also adopted a full consultation and transparency approach with patients, keeping his patients well informed of procedures so that he could discuss his suggestions for treatment with them directly. The new wing theatres also included observation galleries, and McIndo encouraged his patients to watch him operating so that they understood their treatment and could better prepare themselves mentally for surgery. McIndo thoroughly approved of socialising in the hospital, and nurses were often seen chatting with patients while they enjoyed a medicinal beer. It was, in fact, over an alcoholic beverage that the club formed on a Sunday morning in July 1941. Most of the inmates of Ward 3 were nursing hangovers from the night before and decided to have some sherry to make themselves feel better. Michael tells it like this. It was decided to form a drinking society to be known as the Maxillonian Club, at the time Queen Victoria Hospital was a maxillofacial unit, whose members could be called guinea pigs. Squadron leader Tom Gleave, the senior officer present, became chief guinea pig, and pilot officer Geoffrey Page took the minutes. With typical gallows humour, Flying Officer Bill Towers Perkins was appointed secretary because he couldn't write, and Pilot Officer Peter Weeks was the club treasurer, a choice based on the equally sound reasoning that his badly injured legs prevented him from running off with the cash tin. <laughs> As you can see, good humour, even black humour, was an important part of life at QVH, bolstering courage and optimism in the face of their conditions. And what began as something of a joke and an excuse to hold an annual reunion, the club quickly developed a serious purpose to help its weakest members. As well as physically reconstructing his guinea pigs, McIndoe helped their reintegration into society by working with local families to accept patients into their home, homes as guests. His friends Neville and Elaine Blonde bought additional facilities to house recovering airmen and opened up their own home to the guinea pigs where many stayed during their rehabilitation. This was especially welcome as many of McIndoe's international patients could never have family and friends visit during their hospitalisation. But it also contributed to the positive social reintegration of the airmen in the local community and to East Grinstead becoming known as the town that never stared. McIndoe's interest also extended to advocacy on behalf of his patients and with help advocated for improving disability pensions and allowing the recovering airmen to continue wearing their uniform, which, for these former poster boys of the RAF, helped raise their morale. Of course, employing attractive nurses to look after the airmen also helped restore their pride, and a number of nurses eventually married some patients. McIndoe died at the age of 59, having been awarded the Order of the British Empire. His ashes are buried in the RAF Church of St Clement Danes, London, the few remaining guinea pigs continued to pay tribute to his extraordinary, to this extraordinary New Zealander at their reunions. Um, the club's final reunion dinner was held at East Grinstead in 2007, following a 60-year tradition of reunions. Um, and just before I start the next section, um, here are just a few examples of 
artifacts we have in our collection relating to the guinea pig club and i believe all three of these are on display in the history gallery so as i mentioned earlier the guinea pig club was made up of members from around the world but it is in fact difficult to say exactly how many new zealand members there were as michael explains perhaps to avoid nationalism no record of the country of origin of individual members was kept by the club this was further complicated by guinea pigs emigrating after the war, particularly to Australia, New Zealand and South Africa. Barry Cardinal researched all the guinea pig magazines, um, one in the middle there is an example, um, for information on members of other nationalities, including those living in post-war New Zealand. One such guinea pig, Ian Quilter, donated to our archive a 1981 list of 14 known Kiwi guinea pigs. Using this list as a starting point, I'm slowly compiling a full list of the club's New Zealand members, as well as assembling accounts of New Zealand airmen who underwent similar surgeries at the time, though not all at East Grinstead or operated directly on by Mackendo. The research does get pretty messy. For instance, there are names on the 1981 list that appear in Michael's book appendix, but as associated with countries other than New Zealand. To match these names against another source, I've been trawling through individual patient identity cards in the guinea pig archive, which is available online through the East Grinstead Museum website. I currently have over 20 listed names, but I haven't checked all the cards yet. So in lieu of having a complete list to share with you today, I will highlight a couple of Kiwi guinea pigs that are represented in our collection. Flying Officer Vernon E. Mitchell was serving as wireless operator air gunner with number 3030 ferry training unit at Talbini, South Wales, waiting for deployment to the Middle East. On its way back to Wales on 10th of April 1943, his Wellington bomber crashed and exploded on approaching Talbini. We don't have Vernon's diary in the collection, although there, there is a diary um, out there, or there was, um, and here is an excerpt published in the Sunday Star Times from his diary. I had a picture of mum receiving the cable, and it was up to me to say whether it would be injuries or otherwise, so I went to it. I didn't remember any more until I found myself in a flying dive and with the release catch in my hand. The astro hatch swung open. I had a vague recollection of other figures around me. Then I found myself on the ground, and what a relief. It all happened in seconds. I looked down at my hands, the palms were bloody, and the skin on the back was white and hung in shreds. The face felt very tight and the legs felt sticky. My thumb was hanging off at the top and my chin, lips and nose had knocked against some hot metal. Vernon suffered severe burns to his face, arms and legs and was treated at RAF Cosford's Burns Ward in Shropshire under Mackendo's supervision. He remembers Mackendo visiting his ward three months into his recovery and scrawling on his body to outline the operations needed. Besides these photographs, we also have a copy of his official record of burns treatment in the archive. These are dated 11th April 1943 through to 18th July 1945, and include assessment notes and recommendations from Mackendo. Vernon was back flying before the end of the war, though not in the combat role he had originally trained for. And right into his 90s, was still undergoing occasional surgery to deal with the lingering effects of his earlier operations. 
Although entitled to membership of the guinea pig club, he never joined. Another Kiwi wireless operator air gunner, Flying Officer Ivan John Jack Williamson, DFC, underwent surgical treatment for severe burns that year also. He was flying with 115 Squadron RAF when on 14 September 1943, his Lancaster Mark II crashed north of RAF Downham Market after feathering two engines at 1,200 feet during an air test. Six crew were killed, including three RNZAF airmen. Williamson was one of two survivors. He described his experience in Scramble, Memories of the RAF in the Second World War, by Martin Bauman. And I'll read you an extract. We had 1,500 gallons of high-octane fuel on board. The fuel tanks exploded on impact and, lit by the engines, became a wall of flaming petrol. The aircraft broke its back just behind the second spar, flipped over the embankment, and Sergeant Michael Reed, the bomb aimer, and myself were airborne for about 70 yards. We passed through the wall of petrol and became flaming torches, landing in a foot of mud, water and lots of bulrushes where we burned quite furiously. Williamson and Reed were found by an old carpenter who rolled them in the mud to put out their fires. And a Red Cross nurse who was waiting for her train nearby managed to administer injections from her emergency kit. From there, Williamson continues, we were taken to Ely Hospital and I was an inpatient for two months. Officers of the investigating committee questioned me. Apparently the only part of the aircraft completely whole was the engineer's panel. I became one of Sir Archibald Mackendo's guinea pigs at East Grinstead Hospital. I was photographed every morning and got a copy of my early grafts. I healed like a healthy animal and it wasn't long before I was disgracing myself getting a hard-on in my saline bath. <laughs> Now, besides this being a great punchline, the anecdote raises an important point regarding Mackendo's medicinal, uh, medical approach. In 1939, standard first aid treatment for burns was coagulation therapy with tannic acid gel, which formed a hard crust, immobilizing fingers and toes, making skin grafting difficult. Mackendo quickly abandoned this method in favor of introducing saline baths. After the patient was lifted out of the bath, the burned areas were cleansed, dusted with sulfonamide powder, and covered with tool grass dressings before skin grafting. This significant change in the way burns were managed was vital to the ongoing success of the actual surgical treatment given. Um, and just as an aside, this um, picture here is from a scrapbook that we have in the collection um, belonging to Williamson. Of course, the surgical work of McIndoe and his team had its origins in the pioneering work of New Zealand plastic surgeon working at the front lines in World War I, Sir Harold Gillies. As mentioned earlier, Gillies was McIndoe's older cousin, and writing in the 1950s on his war service, said, unlike the student of today, who is weaned on small scar excisions and graduates to hair lips, we were suddenly asked to produce half a face. As my slides illustrate, just reading about this topic and seeing images from the time is pretty harrowing stuff. So how do we tell this story in a museum? Well, for one thing, it's only in recent years that disfigurement and disability as a topic have been represented in museums in recognition of 
museum's responsibility to represent and remain relevant to the diverse communities we serve. So actually talking about people who, who have disabilities as part of their daily life um, is something that is, has in recent years started to be talked about in a museum context. But the act of display carries with it many connotations and not always positive ones. So we might see how displaying this history has the potential to be problematic. That is why I've called this section the art of display. It's a delicate art to do this effectively and with sensitivity. But art itself is also a way in which museums can approach this topic in a creative, thought-provoking way. I'll finish today with one example of how this was achieved at the National Army Museum in London. The Faces of Battle exhibition opened in 2007. The exhibition tells the World War I story of Gilly's plastic surgery unit at Sidcup and features 16 uniform sculptures created by UK artist Paddy Hartley, placed alongside original Gilly's archive documents. Using sculpture, the displays are an, artis an artistic response to materials found in the Gillies archives and the lives of facially injured servicemen treated by Gillies during the war. The exhibition was co-curated by the artist with the exhibitions team at NAM Chelsea, working closely with Dr Andrew Barmgee of the Gillies archive. Importantly, the exhibition doesn't shy away from showing photographic images of facial casualties and their surgeries, but by using sculpture, it also offers a less confronting but still visual way for visitors to engage with the concept of reconstruction. Hartley's faceless men are literally stitched together, their medical notes and service histories embroidered into their uniforms. And I don't have the image in front of me but it is there in the presentation, um, that you can also see references to the tubed pedicle method of screen grafting that Gillies and his team pioneered. Um, and the, that's a technique that Mackindo further developed in World War II. Um, and you've probably seen photos of these um, tube-like um, appendages to, to the face or the area that um, required reconstruction. And it was um, a way in which they could increase the supply of blood to the area so that the new skin grafts could heal more quickly. Despite being described as a difficult and sometimes disturbing exhibition, it tells the story of an important moment in history, just like Mackindo's, his medical advancements and those airmen whose lives and bodies forever were forever changed by war. And although aspects of it are gruesome, the artefacts partnered with the sculptures are a powerful commentary on the wonders of medicine, the human spirit, and the reality of war. Thank you. Are there any questions for Louisa? Yes. How many cuts are there? I'm not sure on that. No, and so they, and they, so their last reunion was in 2007, and that that was due to the aging um, um, club members, um, and also they are spread around the world too. So for those who are getting on in their years, it was quite an effort to to meet up um, every year. 
Um, yeah. How do you determine what's too confrontational? It's a very good question. <laughs> um, and, and you'll notice um, in that um, example I gave, they worked, the museum worked in consultation with um, a number of different um, organisations and um, I personally think that consultation is the way to go. Um, and um, yeah, so and you, you do find that um, these days there's a lot more consultation happening in museums, um, especially when you're talking about um, a subject that is potentially triggering or um, has uh, quite strong um, uh, emotional impacts on people. Yeah, well, there's potential for that. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell me, did the, the Germans have an equivalent uh, of Mackendoe? You're working, you know, for the Fluffer? Do you know that? I would imagine they did. Um, do you hear of anything like that, though, do we? No, no. And I mean, this, the, for, for um, our interest here was based around the New Zealand members. Oh, yeah, yeah, obviously. But, um, but yeah, that, I would say it'd probably be um, research done into um, yeah. the German side of things. But, but I mean, that whole... Um, the Germans would have had experience in the First World War, of too, course, yeah. of, of um, similar yeah. kind of um, uh, war casualties. So, yeah. But I'd say um, there, is, uh, there is quite a bit of literature on the topic, and um, I do have a list here um, in terms of the UK or the, the, the Allied um, story. So Emily Mayhew is, um, has written the most recent materials on the Guinea Pig Club and on the work of Mackendoe. Um, New Zealand um, author Murray Michael has written a, a fantastic book um, which is about the four, um, the big four that I mentioned, um, plastic surgeons that were working across the two world wars. And he writes it, um, he ties their stories very strongly to Otago University, to Dunedin as a place. Um, and, and how their, um, he goes into their um, upbringings and, and how their, their personal lives have influ influenced their work and also how they kind of, um, how their work crossed over um, with each other. And so that's a really great book to look at. Um, and he also goes into how the, the subtitle is The Art and Wartime Surgery of. And so he looks at how, um, they actually used art and drawings as a, um, and then moving into photography as a way of recording the methods that they were using. And because it was experimental, um, they were um, very conscious of keeping a record of the work they were doing as they were um, doing that work. Um, and Andrew Bamji um, has written his focus has been on the First World War and on Gilly's work. So, um, yeah, there's quite a bit out there, and that's just the Allied story. So, um, yeah, I believe it gives you something to maybe look into or helps answer your questions.
if you have any more questions. Any more questions? I can. Um, I'll be hanging around this morning, and um, I can hang around at lunch as well. Um, if you do have any other questions or want to talk to me about it, um, yeah, I'll be open open to that. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.